Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Thursday, October 6th, 2022. It's been 3,141 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 224 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Our chief content officer is traveling for a personal matter, so today's report will be a little bit more brief and not include some of our usual features. We thank you for your understanding. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, conflict within the Kremlin among military leaders has spilled over into the public sphere. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu is at significant risk of being fired, as President Putin appears to be setting him up to be blamed for the failed special military operation. Second, our assessment that the Kremlin's crisis in the information space is damaging Russian President Vladimir Putin's reputation was accurate, with infighting among his most senior military leaders. Third, we maintain our assessment that Russia is incapable of responding simultaneously to three counteroffensives in Luhansk, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Fourth, we maintain that if a Russian force of company size or larger surrenders in northern Kherson, it will create a cascade of surrendering Russian troops. Fifth, we maintain that mass surrenders could become a logistical problem for Ukraine, which could overwhelm the ongoing counteroffensive. Sixth, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, as it would require striking what the Kremlin believes is Russian soil and Russian forces are incapable of fighting in a conventional environment, let alone a CBRN setting. That's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Seventh, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are ineffective due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Eighth, we maintain that the next three days are critical as the Kremlin reveals its border intentions. Ninth, in our assessment, there is a heightened risk of terror attacks on cities in central and western Ukraine over the next few days with the ratification of the sham referendum borders. To be explicitly clear, though, we have no belief or concern that would include weapons of mass destruction. Tenth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. 
And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. Conscripts that were rushed to the Donbass in the past week have not slowed the deterioration and are not contributing to improving combat power. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, maintained tight operational security. The names of liberated settlements and towns are not released until Ukraine has established fire control to minimize Russian shelling. The BBC reported last week that journalists aren't allowed into areas, with a few exceptions, that are closer than 15 kilometers to the front line. The Russian information space acknowledged the retreat, but their reporting was chaotic and contradictory. One Russian mill blogger claimed the new Russian line of defense stretched from Kosirka to Milova, which is impossible. Ukrainian forces liberated Petropavlivka and Novokamyanka, both well south of the suggested new line of defense. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reported the settlements of Novovoskresensk, Novohryorivka, and Petropavlivka were liberated. Given Ukrainian policy on when liberations are announced to protect operational security and minimize civilian casualties, the actual line of conflict is between 10 to 15 kilometers south. That would put Ukrainian troops a few kilometers north of Milova and supports Russian reports that Ukrainian forces are advancing on the town. Private and semi-private Russian telegram channels continue to paint a chaotic picture. Some units are attempting to hold positions while others are in retreat. Numerous complaints remain about a lack of support from command and control, requests for artillery and close air support going unanswered, and units not coordinating attacks. It was reported that some Russian troops are destroying ammunition caches and abandoned equipment as they withdraw. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported up to 150 wounded Russian troops are staged in Vesele, waiting to cross the Kohovka Bridge to go to military hospitals. Our assessment that the reported Russian withdrawal from Snikhorivka was fake was correct. There are reports that Russian officers withdrew from the fortified settlement, leaving Russian troops behind. We can't confirm the veracity of those reports, but that aligns with the experiences of some Russian units. A quick note here, though. Not all Russian commanders are abandoning the front lines. You don't end up with dead colonels and generals if they all retreat. There were reports the Ninel Hotel and Brothel in Kherson, which was housing Russian FSB agents, was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS. There were claims up to seven Russian security agents were killed. In Inulitz, a Russian barracks was also hit by rockets or possibly long-range artillery, causing heavy damage. Repeat attacks on Novokachovka were reported within the town and on the partial repair of the bridge at the Kachovka Dam. The Ukrainian Air Force performed four airstrikes, and ground forces carried out 350 fire missions. Maintaining operational security, there was no information on what was targeted. Our assessment here... We maintain that Russian troops will find it challenging to establish defensive lines with the Ukrainian military pressing on the line of conflict. 
Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, is deteriorating again. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree claiming ownership of Europe's largest nuclear power station on October 5th. His action was widely condemned. The Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Rafael Mariano Grossi, said he would engage in consultations with the relevant authorities in meetings he is having this week in Kiev and Moscow. The IAEA is still attempting to get Russia to agree to demilitarize the area around the plant and the plant itself. Only the Kremlin is holding back a deal, claiming they still need to protect the ZNPP from, quote, terrorists. On-site inspectors with the IAEA told Grossi that Russia plans to replace the Ukrainian staff with employees from Rosatom. Additionally, employees of the Ukrainian state nuclear power company Energoatom reported that Russia intends to restart Reactor 5. Currently, all six reactors are in a cold shutdown state. The IAEA also reported that an industrial area between the ZNPP and the industrial areas of Enerhodar was shelled by artillery, the first such incident in almost a week. Plant operations were not impacted, and the radiation levels remained normal. At the time of recording, there were no reports of shelling in Nikopol or Marchanets or missile attacks in Dnipropetrovsk. The Ukrainian counteroffensives have likely pushed Grad and Smirch rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, out of range of Kriviri. A quick assessment here. We don't see any reason to believe that the Nikopol Hromada won't be attacked between the time that we record this episode and the time that you listen to it. Russian forces have not used strategic bombers to hit Ukrainian targets from a standoff distance in quite some time, and there have been very few Caliber and Iskander M missile attacks theater-wide. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The only fighting we can report is sporadic artillery fire from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv. So, moving right along to southwest Donetsk. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, Militia Public Relations Channel, reported fighting in one area. They claimed to have destroyed two mortar units and three armored vehicles in the oblast. Ukraine executed over 190 fire missions on the occupied territory. DNR militia leaders released a video showing positional fighting in Avdiivka, resulting in losses for both belligerents. The GSAFU reported fighting near Novomikhailivka with no change in the situation. We had assessed that fighting reported on September 4th by the GSAFU near Vulidar was insignificant, and it looks like we were correct, with Ukrainian positions in Pavlivka reportedly shelled today. In northeast Donetsk, the situation remains unchanged. Russian forces continued their attempts to advance on Vyamka without success. Fighting continued on the southern edge of Bakhmutska, 
led by private military company or PMC Wagner Group, with no change in the situation. There is continued fighting east of Bakhmut, with a wide range of rumors coming from pro-Russian channels. Some have reported that Ukrainian forces are withdrawing from the city, which we find highly unlikely. Others report the direct opposite and believe Ukraine will deliver a large counteroffensive in the immediate future. We see no evidence that supports either suggestion, and this is representative of the confusion and frustration among Russian mill bloggers. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR, 3rd Brigade, continued attacks on Mayorsk, but could not build upon the incremental gains they made on Monday. War crime investigators discovered a mass grave in Lehman with the bodies of at least 50 civilians. The site is being exhumed. In Luhansk, defensive lines for Russian forces, which have barely been formed, appear to be cracking, with Svatov and Kremina facing a growing risk of encirclement. Pro-Russian sources reported that Rekivka and Makivka in Luhansk are under Ukrainian control, and Ukrainian forces were advancing on Rajhorodka. Hey, fun fact, Rajhorodka is only 14 kilometers west of Svatov. In Svatov, the security situation is declining. Russian sources reported that most civilians have been evacuated and that Ukrainian troops are advancing from three directions to the key transit and supply hub. Despite almost eight months of occupation, it does not appear that much in the form of defenses were built. Ukraine won't attack the city head-on, though, and is working on encirclement. The situation in Kremina is calm, but Ukrainian forces appear to be working on developing an encirclement there, too, with reports of advances to the north and south of the town. Pro-Russian accounts claim the P-66 highway between Kremina and Svatov is severed and has been closed to civilian traffic. We cannot, however, confirm the veracity of these claims. Luhansk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Serhii Haidai reported that six villages in the oblast had been liberated, but did not name which ones, because he understands operational security. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Really, though, with Ukrainian forces controlling 98% of the oblast, there is very little to report. Pro-Russian sources claim Ukrainian forces are advancing on Orlyanske, but we can't verify the veracity of the claim. Otherwise, Ukrainian forces worked to consolidate the new territory on the east bank of the Oskil and started the work of rebuilding the region. On the Russian front, there appears to be significant infighting among some of the most powerful military leaders in Russia that is spilling over into the public sphere. Russian President Putin is setting up Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu to take the blame for the failures of the so-called special military operation. President Putin signed a decree that defers the mobilization of all part-time and full-time students, citing inaction by the Russian Ministry of Defense as his reason for intervention. This is a direct attack on Shoigu, who announced last week that deferments would be made. That's kind of rude. Aspiring dentist Dondon Romzan Kudyrov was promoted to Colonel General. That's the same rank as Alexander Lapin, who commands Russia's Central Military District 
and has been a favorite target of Kadyrov's online rants. Kadyrov has also blamed the Russian Ministry of Defense for the failures, though without naming Shoigu directly. The promotion indicates that Kadyrov is moving deeper into Putin's inner circle and has successfully been a sycophant. It has also fueled speculation that Kadyrov could become the new central military district commander or replace Shoigu as the minister of defense. Okay, just a quick assessment, though. If President Putin is trying to set up Shoigu to be fired due to lying about the situation in Ukraine and troop readiness, Kadyrov will not be an upgrade. Objectively, not an upgrade. Retired General Andrei Katopolov, a member of the state Duma, came after Shoigu saying that all the lies from the Ministry of Defense must stop. Although the statement was broad, he narrowed it down by saying, quote, individual leaders were responsible for the deception coming from the MOD. PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin appears to be going after Shoigu, with the Kremlin fighting back. A video appeared today of alleged Mobiks in Bielgorod. They claimed they had been given equipment, guns, and ammunition, but no direction after, and had waited for a week for training with no support, housing, or food. Some of the refuseniks were wearing PMC Wagner patches on their uniforms. Hours later, Alexei Slobodyanik, who manages multiple PMC Wagner social media disinformation accounts, was detained by the FSB and accused of fraud. Some have suggested that the arrest, hours after the potentially fake video of refuseniks was released, shows the Kremlin is cracking down on discontent about the special military operation. Prigozhin has been increasingly vocal in his criticism of the Russian MOD, and many Wagner channels appear to have turned the focus of their internal disinformation operations to Russia. If the detention has led to a formal fraud charge, Slobodyanuk will face a Russian justice system with a 99% conviction rate. Prigozhin is another member of Putin's inner circle and is potentially fleecing the Kremlin by rushing penal units of mercenaries to the front with almost no training, while being paid seventy dollars to $100,000 for each Mobik's six-month contract. Their average lifespan is from one to three weeks once they get in country. Okay, some assessment here. Changing leadership at the Russian MOD will not change the culture within the Russian military that has festered for decades— if not more than a century. It will not recover the tens of billions of rubles worth of missing equipment and undone maintenance. Kadyrov will be a worse military leader than Shoigu and has repeatedly amplified lies about Chechen troops' status, successes, and fighting skills. Prigozhin would be the better leader, but won't do anything to address the corruption that has destroyed the Russian military. On the contrary, it is likely he will only make it worse. Let's talk about what's going on outside Ukraine. The United States announced another $625 million military aid package to Ukraine. Military hardware provided includes four high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, GMLRS launchers, and ammunition, 1,655mm M777 howitzers, 75,155mm artillery rounds, 500 precision-guided 155mm Excalibur artillery shells, 
1,155mm rounds of remote anti-armor mine systems, 16 M109 105mm howitzers, 30,000 120mm mortar rounds, and 200 Max Pro mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles. The package also includes a number of small arms weapons and ammunition. We do have some late-breaking news today. Oleksandr Staruk, the Zaporizhia Oblast military and administrative governor, reported on Telegram that seven rockets struck the city of Zaporizhia this morning, hitting multiple high-rise buildings. There were casualties, and rescue operations were still underway at the time of recording, working to free people from under the rubble, including a three-year-old. A few hours later, Staruk reported that another rocket had hit the city and urged residents to stay in shelters. Explosions were reported in Melitopol, according to exiled mayor of Melitopol, Ivan Fedorov. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.